0: Again, welcome to Freedom. I'm so glad to see you here today, and to many who are joining us online, we are always so glad to have you tuned in and be a part of worship like that. Uh, Before we turn our attention to the words, uh, let me just say a quick word about some adjustments that we have had to make uh, just in the last day or two. Many of you already are aware, but I want to make sure that everybody knows. uh, The elders have made a decision that we We're thrilled about uh, feeling like we needed to make this weekend, and that is that we are temporarily, and I do mean temporarily, suspending our adult meetings, that is our 242 groups, all of our small group meetings, and other just administrative-type meetings just for a little while, for the remainder of January and for all of February. We we fully expect that we'll be able to resume those things in March. The reason for doing that is simple. Uh, The pandemic has so affected Baldwin County, it's become such a hot spot And and just being honest, churches have become among the worst spreaders in Baldwin County, as is the case for for lots of other regions. Uh, We have some sister churches that have had just explosions of the disease, and it's quite apparent that church is where it's being spread. Uh, Thankfully, that has not happened here. We've got a number of families who have been affected, but we haven't had a major outbreak in our church. And uh, Yes, the Lord has protected us in this, but it's not that he loves us more than he loves people in other churches. Quite honestly, we've taken much more aggressive measures as precautions to try and guard us against this, and I think we're enjoying the fruit of that. We don't want to follow the example of some churches who have like more than 50% of their people infected right now. And so to that end, we're doing everything we can to try and safeguard you. The scriptures call the elders of the church as a first charge to protect the flock of God that is under your care, and so I'm speaking to you. As an elder, the elders have decided for a span of what's probably going to be six or eight weeks that we will just temporarily hold off on these things. The good news, and it ultimately is good news today, is that the vaccine is here, and it's making a a huge difference, and it's going to make a huge difference. The window opens tomorrow for our uh, oldest seniors to have access to it, and I want to encourage you to take it. There's, There's nothing political in this statement. I just want to see you safe. And I know a lot of people have had fear because they've had to move quickly to develop these vaccines. I hope everybody's going to wind up getting it. I'll guarantee you, in our household, we're going to get it as quickly as we can. And it is simply a numbers thing. In America, 20 million people have gotten the disease. 400,000 plus have died. More than 10 million people have gotten the vaccine. You can count on your fingers how many people have died. Of those two equations, I know which side of the page I'm going to be on. I'm going to take it as soon as I can get it. Let me encourage you. Most of our older seniors are watching online. People who are 75 or older can get it starting tomorrow. And it's, it's easy access, honestly. Jackie, as a nurse, she and the staff that she works with were able to get their first dose this week. She didn't grow a second head or a third arm taking it. She's right here among us. And she was able to go online Thursday to register her parents since that window opens tomorrow for Phase 1B, she was able to go online Thursday. By yesterday, she got confirmation for them. They'll get their first dose on Friday. It's that easy. It took two minutes to do it. So I hope you won't be afraid to take that step. I don't want to say one other thing about this. There's such a, to me, an unnecessary debate that's taking place among Christians as to, well, if you shut something down or if you take the vaccine or whatever, you know, isn't that a lack of faith in God? Absolutely not. It is not has nothing to do with fear, and it has nothing to do with lack of faith. When we partner with God in kingdom work, God doesn't need us, but he, he always operates in partnership to accomplish his will. And when it comes to our health and safety, we always partner with God. You have a role to play. God has a role to play. You eat right. You take care of yourself. You're not being foolish or expressing a lack of faith when you lock your doors at night or when you put your seatbelt on. You're doing your part. You're trusting God to protect you, but you're doing your part. It's no different when we do the things that we can do to ensure our health and safety. So I'm just saying that as a pastoral word to you. Let's do our part. What I want is for us to all survive this and in just a matter of weeks or months to be back at a place where we're going full speed and this absurd thing we've had to deal with is mostly behind us and the church can just move forward unimpeded. You with me in that? Let's get her done and move forward. So we'll be back on track with normal stuff in a short, short while. Now, let's turn our attention to the Scriptures. We are in a series. We're in part three of a series that's entitled Living with Margin. The whole idea is making room for the things that really do count in life. Have you ever felt like you just struggled with that sense of, I don't know, what my purpose is, I want my life to count, but i don 't know if it's counting i, I don 't know if i 'm making a real difference. I think everybody's probably felt that, and I know that everyone feels a drive to live your life in a way that it does impact others, that it does make a difference that it it brings glory to God, that it has a positive impact on the people around us and what we 're going to talk about today is just that living a life that is is more productive that does make more of a difference, and it does matter to God one of the the two main terms that you find in Scripture referencing this concept is the word stewardship, which is all about making the most of the opportunities and the resources that you've been given. You know, it's up to God to decide how many resources and opportunities you're given, but it's up to you to decide what you do with the resources and opportunities that God has given to you. And it's interesting to note how much the Scripture speaks about this. And, and this whole idea of, of productivity It really does matter in pretty much every setting, doesn't it? I mean, we want to be faithful and productive, whether we're talking about at the level of just living as an individual, as a family, as a business, as a church, or as a nation. How we steward the opportunities and resources that we're given really does matter. It's interesting to note when you think in terms of of how productive someone is or or a group or a country is to to look at us as Americans. We're very much focused on this idea of productivity. Americans represent 4.3% of the world's population. About 1 in 23 people on the planet are Americans. We live on what is only 7% of the land mass in the world, and yet America produces 18% of all the products that are made on the globe. We are a productive nation. We take great pride in that, don't we, that as Americans we get it done it's interesting to realize that that ultimately doesn't originate with us. That starts in the heart of God, that, that God did not make us to just sit. He didn't just make us to one day get saved so that we could just go to heaven and do nothing. That God made us to be productive people. Now, when the Bible talks about how God wants us to be productive, if you go into your, your Bible app and you put in the word uh, productivity, there's probably not going to be much of anything that shows up. The Bible word for this concept is a much more organic word or organic phrase, and it is the word fruitfulness. The, the biblical phrase for being productive is bearing fruit. If you want to follow along in your outlines, that's the first, uh, first uh, fill-in there. Bearing fruit is what the Scripture speaks of, and Jesus talks about this constantly. In my quiet time this morning, it, it came up again in Matthew 21. Jesus was confronting the Jews about how their lives were not bearing fruit in line with what he had called them to be doing. And he's so serious about this, this thing that he said to them, because of this, the kingdom is being snatched from you and will be given to a people who will bear fruit. Jesus cares about this stuff. In fact, in the New Testament, there's 66 times that that word fruit, in, in Greek it's karpos, that it appears, and we're going to look at several of those today, And ultimately, what we're going to consider is just two things. What is it that from the scriptures that God considers a really productive and fruitful life? What does that look like? It's not about getting rich. It's not about making a lot of money and having a lot of stuff. But what does a really productive life look like? And how do I live a more productive life? We're going to look at four keys from the scriptures for doing that. But first, we begin with the words of Jesus in John 15. Just remember the setting In uh, these chapters of John, John 15 is in the middle of the longest uh, passage that we have of Jesus just talking at one time. We have five entire chapters that are just one discourse from Jesus. It's at the Passover supper on the night that Jesus is betrayed. This is just hours before Jesus goes to the cross. And the only reason I point that out is to say, if you knew that by this time tomorrow you would be dead... How careful would you be with every minute, with every hour, with every word between now and that time? You'd make every single one count, wouldn't you? I'm not saying Jesus was ever flippant in what he said. But you know, as he, he's now, it's not weeks or days. It, it's not even going to be long hours he's got with the disciples. The, the clock is ticking down to zero on the time he has to instruct them. And as he's getting to the last things he's going to say to them, he says among those final thoughts in John 15... We'll start in verse 8. Jesus said, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. There's so much in John 15, but even just in this one verse, three things that we need to notice. First of all, he reminds us that this whole idea of us being productive and bearing fruit, that ultimately it brings glory to God, and oh, by the way, that's what it's all about. We want to... To feel like our lives counted. We want to feel some sense of meaning and purpose in life. And God cares about those things. But at the end of the day, it's not about me and it's not about you. It's about God and His glory. And Jesus said, if you want God to be glorified in your life, do something with it. Do something with the resources, the talents, and opportunities that have been given to you. Don't just act like the Christian life is a matter of getting saved and trying to abstain from everything bad and get to heaven without having done bad stuff because that is not what Jesus saved you to do. He didn't save you so you could sit in church the rest of your life. He didn't save you so you could say no to bad stuff the rest of your life as if that is the ultimate goal. No, he said, bear fruit, be productive, do something that matters and God will get glory in that and also in that, He said, God wants you to bear much fruit. He wants you to do a lot with the opportunities that you've been given. And that will be the thing that will show the world that you truly are a disciple of Jesus. I find that really interesting. Of all the things that Jesus could have said that's going to mark us, and he gave us some other indicators that will be clear to the world that we belong to him. But he says one of the clearest things is going to be that people will be able to look at you and go, that joker is making a difference. People are impacted when they're around him. He isn't wasting his time or opportunities. There's real fruit in that life. That must be a follower of Jesus. I find it interesting that so many people who have been considered so deeply spiritual have tried to escape the world so that they can live in isolation, so that they can really be a godly person. And I think, how does that line up with the teachings of Jesus, who is so clearly calling us to interact with the world so that we can impact the world And bring glory to God. He goes on to say in verse 16 of the same passage. You did not choose me. But I chose you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And you're not going to be able to do this. Without building margin into your life. There's so, so many things that may not be terribly fruitful. In terms of what we're going to see. God's idea of a fruitful life looks like. There are a lot of things that you've just got to do. That's not the measure of of fruitfulness in your life. You're going to have to build in margin so that you have time and energy to pour into the things that are going to bear fruit. One of the best-known parables that Jesus told is the parable of the talents. And I always find it a little bit humorous that when you hear people talk about the parable of the talents, it's almost universal that we will, even though we've grown up in church and we've heard the parable told right, we'll we'll still twist it into something that it's not... because, unfortunately, the term talent, it doesn't mean what it means today. When we say something about your talent, we think in terms of some skill you've got. You know, you can, you can sing, you can dance, you can run really fast. That's your talent. The parable of the talents has nothing to do with that. The word talent was simply a measure. It was a measure of weight that was used to, to measure wealth, gold or silver. And it was, if you look at a list of like weights and measures in the Bible, it's the top end of the list. It's the top item you'll see because it's the big one. A talent is 75 pounds. Now, when Jesus tells this parable, he doesn't say what they're measuring, whether it's gold or silver. We'll go to the low end. We'll assume that it was silver that's being measured. So when Jesus tells the story of the, the parable of the talents, he said there was a wealthy man. He had three servants, and the wealthy man's going to go on a trip. And so he entrusts a good bit of his wealth, To his servants in varying measures for them to manage and invest. And so, to the first one, he gives him one talent of his wealth. That is literally 75 pounds. As we said, we'll go on the low end, 75 pounds of silver. I'll do the math for you really quickly if you haven't checked the price of silver lately. That would be $30,000 worth of silver. So, nobody's getting the short end of the stick here. The first servant. Here's $30,000 for you to manage for a time. To the second servant, he gives two talents. Here's $60,000 for you to manage. And to the third servant, five talents. Here's $150,000 for you to manage. See you. I'll be back after a time. Now, you do what you will with this to make the most of this. He goes away, and it says immediately the one who was given the five talents, the 150 grand, it says he immediately goes to work trading and, and doing something productive with what he was given. And it says the same thing of the second guy. He takes the 60,000, he gets busy trading with that. But it says that the third guy, the one that was first given the, the one talent, it says he immediately goes out and he digs a hole and he buries it marks the spot. And so after a season the master comes back he calls in his three servants and says, "All right. Let me hear what you've done. Let me see what you've done with what you've been given." And so the man with the who had been given the 5, the guy with the 150 grand comes in and says, "Sir, I invested what you gave me and here are your 10 talents. Here's 300,000 back to you." And the master smiles and says, "Well done faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You've been faithful with a little and now you have an opportunity to manage a lot. Jesus tells a, a similar parable to this. We were going to cover that in small group this week. We're not going to get to now, but in a parallel telling of, of this in another of the gospels, he says, you now will be given authority over 10 cities as your responsibility because of how you've been faithful with what you were given to the second one. Who was given to He comes and says, Here, sir, here's four talents back. Here's a hundred and twenty thousand when you handed me sixty. And he says exactly the same thing. Well done, you've been faithful. Enter into your master's reward. And the other gospel account he says, now you'll be in charge of four cities because of how you manage that. Now the final one. He says, Come and show me what you've done. And he comes and he gives him exactly what he had been handed to begin with. Here's your one talent back. Here's the the 30 grand that you put in my hands. The master shakes his head and says, what is this? What have you done with what I gave you? And he said, "I, I knew you were a harsh master that you'd want that back. And so I dug a hole and buried it to make sure that I could give you everything you gave me. I didn't take any risk whatsoever. Made sure I could give you back exactly what you were given. And he said, at the very least... You could have invested it at the bank. There'd be a little interest with this. You haven't done anything. And Jesus said that the master will look at him and say, you wicked and lazy servant. Bind him and throw him out. There's no room for anyone who, who mishandles what he's been given like this. Jesus takes this business of what we do with what we've been given. He takes this so seriously. Do you feel the weight of that? I mean, we could camp on that that one parable because the implications of when you've been faithful with what you've been given, how Jesus makes you responsible for so much more. I mean, there's such a, a key teaching in that. But the whole idea that there isn't room in the kingdom of God for people who are just going to sit on their hands and do nothing. He wants us to bear fruit. And he wants it to be fruit that will last. And that means he wants there to be longevity about this in our lives. There are a lot of people who, and you've all witnessed this, that they'll come to faith or else they'll already be a person of faith and they'll, they'll experience some kind of spiritual high point. Maybe it happened at a Promise Keepers event. Maybe it was at a, at a retreat or an Emmaus walk or something like that. And you come back from it and you're just ready to attack the gates of hell with a water pistol. That's woo-woo for Jesus. Just you're, you are fired up. And that, we've all been there, haven't we? I mean, it's, it's great to have those kinds of highs. And so for a little time, man, we are going full speed. Preacher signed me up. I want to serve somewhere. I want to make a difference. I want to knock on doors. I want to share Jesus. And that's cool. But I want to tell you, the measure of how faithful we are, has little to do with what we're going to accomplish in the next three weeks after that spiritual high point. The real measure is what are we going to do over the next three years, over the next 30 years, because Jesus said, you need to bear fruit that will last over the long haul. And if that's going to happen, you're going to have to buy into the things that we'll talk about today. And you're going to have to build margin in your life. You're going to have to to have pace to your life because this is not a sprint. This is a marathon that we are in. So the next thing I want to address is the question of what is the fruit that we're talking about? What is a truly productive life in the eyes of God? The scriptures speak of four things that four kinds of fruit that a Christian should bear. And I I want us to be really clear on these because This is not what we probably normally carry around as as our mindset of what a productive life looks like. This is what the Scripture says a productive life looks like. First of all, it will be that we bear the fruit of repentance. You remember John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus? Jesus said, there's never been a man walk on earth greater than John. The message of John the Baptist, as he is about to hand off the baton to Jesus, was to repent to change your way of thinking and living and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What is the fruit of repentance? It's not a complicated concept. To repent means that you do a 180. You make a a radical turn in your life in terms of how you think and how you behave. Well, what is the turn that we're making? To simplify it, it just boils down to this. It is a turn from a life that is self-centered, that is self-directed, to a life that is God and other-centered. Nobody in the room, nobody watching and listening online had to take a course in selfishness, did we? I mean, every single one of us, without knowing the story of your childhood, I know this about you, one of the first words that you learned to speak was, mine. No, mine. Every child that's ever come into the world that ever speaks, that's one of the first words in their vocabulary because we are so self-centered. We want to have what's ours, and we want to do it our way, and we want to be in control of our lives. And when we are called to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance, it means that I stop living as if it's all about me and it's all for me and I've got to be in control and I've got to possess what's mine to turn radically away from that and say it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about living to please Him and recognizing that the life that pleases Him is other-centered so suddenly, I start caring about all of these people who have nothing to offer me. Not because I'm going to gain anything from you. I just care about you because you matter to God and because you're my brothers and sisters. That is a fruitful life. That is a productive life. It's no longer about me. It's about loving God by loving and serving others. That is the first mark of a productive life. Would you say that's a fruitful life? When you begin to care more about others than you do about serving yourself, that's the first kind of fruit. The second kind of fruit is, you expect to hear this if you've been in church, is the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, Paul talks about two different kinds of lives. A life that is lived and controlled by the flesh, that is just by the, the base carnal nature that we have, and a life that is controlled by the Spirit. And he gives a very... Graphic description of what a life lived in the flesh is going to produce. But he says, on the other hand, the life that's controlled and led by the Spirit of God will bear the fruit of the Spirit. And in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, he says, there are nine things that you're going to see more and more of in a life that bears spiritual fruit. You're going to see more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, more faithfulness, more gentleness and more self-control. What he's describing here is that the fruit of the spirit is a fruit of the change of a person's character that they no longer have the same basic operating system. the things that have driven them before don't drive them now and the result of that, Is a life that is so contagious that other people want what they have. I mean, when you're around people, think through those words again as character qualities, as descriptive terms for somebody that you spend time with. That first of all, they're just loving. They just love other people. You can tell it's not for show. They genuinely care. When you're talking, they want to listen, they care about what you're saying, and they have a joy. And a peace, And there's this incredible patience. They're not in a rush. They're not always just using people and blowing by people. They're truly patient. They're kind. They're good. They're gentle people. And they're not out of control. Self-control describes who they are. Who doesn't want that as a spouse? Who doesn't want that as a best friend? Sign me up for, for those kinds of people in my life. What he's describing here is a person who is growing to be more and more like Jesus. When the Scripture speaks of a productive life, of a fruitful life, they're talking about a life that changes in character to look like these nine qualities. The third thing the Scripture references in terms of the kinds of fruit we're to bear is the fruit of bringing others to Jesus. No surprise in that. In God's order of things... Ants produce more ants, dogs produce more dogs, humans produce more humans, and Christians produce more Christians. That's how everything in God's order works. Living things reproduce, period. If they don't reproduce, that that is one of the fundamental definitions of something that's alive. It reproduces. If you are a living Christian, the net result will be that other Christians are, are created They come into existence because of you. And you and I are actually the fruit of somebody else's life. Have you paused to consider that lately? Have you thought lately about, and it's probably more than one person, but have you thought about the people whose lives your faith is the fruit of? You didn't get here on your own. Somebody else influenced you to to come to the place that you are if you're a follower of Jesus. Now, a lot of times we carry this as a burden like, oh, I know I'm supposed to be a witness. And, and we, it's sort of sad how in our culture, and I grew up in the in what I'm about to describe, that we created this culture that said, if you're a witness, here's what it's going to look like. And we, we basically drew a picture that is, you're going to have a little Jesus speech, and everybody you can pin down to listen to your Jesus speech, you better do it. And hopefully one day, one of them will be desperate enough, they'll say yes to your Jesus speech. You know what I'm talking about? I, I'm not. I'm not trying to make light of the power of the gospel because it is indeed powerful. But we've we've so turned this into like a little talk that we've got to give instead of recognizing the beauty of what the scripture describes. That if you live a life that bears the fruit that we're describing, where first of all, instead of being self-centered, I'm other-centered and God-centered. I truly love Jesus and I truly love people around me and my life is bearing this fruit that love and joy and peace and patience goodness faithfulness kindness are what describes me when i live that kind of life and lost people come around me i'll guarantee you this there's going to be an interest to know what has he got what has she got that they live this way they are different and suddenly it's not about seeing who you can find to get pinned between you and the window seat of the airplane so they have to listen to your jesus speech and yes i Plenty of times I've shared the gospel on airplanes and in taxis and stuff. Yes, there are times when we give the gospel concisely in that moment, and we need to be prepared to do that. But most of the time, being a witness is living this thing out in ordinary life, but where extraordinary fruit is being born, and people are going, what is it about this guy? What is it about this gal? And they discover, as you have opportunity to share, it's Jesus. Jesus is who has changed me. Jesus is the one who has caused me to care about others and to be a different kind of person. The fruit of this will be others coming to Jesus. And the fourth and final fruit is this. It is the fruit of a ministry to others. Using your skills, your gifts, resources, and opportunities to make a difference in other people's lives. We call this ministry. Now, not everybody's called to be a vocational pastor, but everybody who's a follower of Jesus is called to be a minister absolutely using the opportunities that we've been given. One final word I'll say before we we move into the keys to to living a more fruitful life is a final word on the seriousness of not bearing fruit from the lips of Jesus. In Luke 13, Jesus tells another little parable. This is probably one of the lesser known parables that he shared. He said a a landowner had a vineyard, and uh, he said he wanted planted in his vineyard a fig tree. So he had it planted right in the middle of the vineyard and for years he went back to that fig tree to go and pick figs off of it to eat except every time he went, he got nothing in return. And so he called in the master over his vineyard and he said, I want that fig tree taken out. And then and uh, I put this in your outline, verse 7 of Luke 13 as he's telling this story. This is the, the landowner talking to his, the keeper of his vineyard and he says, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even use up the soil? And the keeper of the vineyard said, Sir, how about this? Could we give it one more year? We'll dig around it. We'll fertilize it. We'll give it everything we can. We'll give it one more year. And if it doesn't bear fruit this year, sir, we will cut it down. And that's how Jesus ends the story. Now you tell me, What do you think that parable is about? I don't think there's any great mystery to it. I don't think you have to be a great theology student to recognize the point that Jesus is making. Jesus expects us to do something with the relationships, the resources, and the opportunities that we've been given to bear fruit. And I just wonder, I mean, when I read that parable, I wonder how many times we are at the point that's described in this parable where God is growing impatient because he's given us so much, and where some of us have just been sort of sitting around feeling like the ultimate in our service to God is that we showed up and sat in an air-conditioned and heated room in padded chairs and went, Woohoo, didn't we serve God good this week? We sat in there for an hour or maybe an hour and a half because we got a long-winded preacher. I mean, wow, we served God. As if this were in some way how we bore fruit. That's not even what this is about. I wonder how many of us are kind of in that place that the, the Lord is saying, we're going to dig a trench and we're going to fertilize because we, I believe in bringing the best out of my children, but we better see some fruit. I don't want him looking at my life saying, I've been looking at you for years, coming to you day after day, and I don't see anything being born. So, to that end, let's consider from the Scriptures, how can we be more fruitful with our lives. Four keys to a more fruitful life. I said four secrets, but that's really not a good description because they're not secrets. They're there clearly in the scriptures. Four conditions for a more fruitful life, a more fruitful family, a more fruitful ministry. The first one is this. I, you, we must cultivate deep roots. This is the starting point, And this is the easy one to remember. If you want good fruits, you got to have the roots. That's it. You can't have the fruits without the roots. We, we look at, at the parts of a person's life that you can see in public. But the reality is there's only going to be good fruit if in the parts that you can't see, there are roots going down, firmly establishing that person. In Jeremiah 17, beginning in verse 7, it says, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes, its leaves are always green, and it has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. He points out two important things that roots are going to do for a life. He says, In times of heat, And in times of drought, you're still going to have green leaves, you're still going to be fully alive, and you're still going to be fruitful. What's heat and drought about? Well, well, heat is pretty obvious to me that it's about the pressures and the difficulties of life. Everybody's going to have those. The name it and claim it, Prosperity Theology, wants to have us believe that you get to avoid all of those things if you really love Jesus and have faith, and that's hogwash. Everybody has difficulty. Everybody has problems. Those things are going to come in your life. But they're not going to keep you from being fully alive and bearing fruit if you've got the roots. And he says seasons of drought are going to come. What's drought? Drought is when you are lacking in what you need. It is a season where you don't have all of the resources that you need. Some of you right now, you might be in a season of drought. It may be that you don't have all the money you need. Anybody ever been there? Just me. Yep, I've been there. You ever been in a place that you were lacking something else that you needed? Maybe you were lacking work. You need a full-time job and you're getting 15 hours a week. You are, you're in a drought. You, you're lacking a resource. You, you lack money. You lack work. Maybe you're in a drought for friends. Maybe you're in a drought that you need energy. There's just something health-wise going on with you. You're in a season of drought. Having the roots will ensure that even he, he doesn't just say a few weeks or a few months of drought. He says in a year of drought, you'll never stop bearing fruit because the roots are in place. So it's key for us to to have roots that that move in two directions. I, I think I mentioned one of these illustrations to you before, but the sequoia trees in California, one of the most extraordinary things on the planet, biggest living things that you'll find on Earth. And yet, when you if you could look at a diagram of them, it's such a striking thing. You know, they'll go up to 400 feet high above ground, and they have an extensive root structure. But it doesn't have this deep taproot. It's got an extensive root structure that goes kind of moderately deep in the ground. But it spreads out this way, and they grow in groves. You would think something that's 400 feet high, it should be very easy to knock over in a high wind. But you can't knock these things over because they grow in groves, and their roots all spread out like this, and every tree becomes interwoven with every other tree around it under the surface. You can't knock them down. Because they're holding on to every other tree around them. And it is a picture of the lives of Christians who decide, I'm not a solo act. I'm not an only child of God. I'm a part of the family of God. And so I connect. I don't just show up on Sunday morning where I could just be just a a nameless face. But I get connected to other people who know me, who spend time with me. And in the tough seasons of of drought and of heat, when everything's really tough, they're holding on to me, and you can't knock me down because they're helping to hold me up. That's part of it. And the other part of, of having a good root system is roots that go down deep. I don't know if you know this or not, but a banana tree is a picture of what is being talked about in Jeremiah. Because of its root system, you just can't kill a banana tree. You just can't hardly do it. Cold doesn't do it. You can kill it back, it's going to come back. You can chop it down, you can bulldoze it. It's coming back because of the root system. You literally will have to dig it up because its roots are so hardy. Proverbs 12, 3 says this, "...the righteous cannot be uprooted." So then, how can you grow deep roots? Two verses that I'll share with you. First in Psalm 1, it says of those who who grow deep roots... They find joy in obeying the law of the Lord. You know, in the Old Testament, this is how they describe the written word of God, the law of the Lord. And they study it day and night. They're like trees that grow beside a stream that bear fruit at the right time and whose leaves do not dry up. They succeed in everything they do. I don't know about you, but when I read a promise like that, I mean, that gets underlined. That gets noticed by me because when there's the promise, you're going to succeed in everything you do if. I want to know the rest of that sentence. What do I need to do to ensure that what I do is going to be successful, it's going to be fruitful? He says, here's the deal. You make the Word of God the foundation of your life. He says they are in it every day. They are students of the Word. Why is that? Is it so that we know all the rules and we live by the rule book? Not at all. That is not what that's about. The reality of a fruitful life and its connection to the Word of God is this. This is not the rule book of life. This is the written word of God revealing the living word of God that is the person of Jesus. If we just could boil all this down to its core, it is this. A fruitful life is a life that is completely rooted in Jesus. It is a person who is growing more and more and more in love with Jesus. And everything else that you've heard me describing is driven by that one fundamental reality. They just love Jesus. And this book reveals the person of Jesus like nothing else. We get something of the character and greatness of God in, in creation and experiencing the, the life of the church, the body of Christ. But nothing reveals God the way that the scriptures reveal him. In our um, core team meeting and in our small group leader meeting, both of those last Sunday, we were talking about this this thing and, and what it is that just sets some people apart. And we were talking specifically about some of us who've had opportunities, particularly been to other places, but particularly some of our experiences with Christians in Africa, in places where there is such incredible fruit from a Christian perspective, productivity on a scale that we just can't even hardly imagine. And what is it that's so different about them? And the thing that just jumps out if you go and spend time with them, and it's not like you have to study them to figure it out. It's like within five minutes you see this. I mean, I I just immediately recognized from the very first time that I was there, I don't think I have ever been with people before who are so in love with Jesus. It's not that they are, are such great students or they have such great resources. In fact, they have far fewer resources than we do. They are just so overwhelmingly in love with Jesus. They love His Word. They are in His Word. They are up before the sun is up, just calling out to Jesus. It's mind-boggling and convicting to just hear the earnestness in their voices, even when you can't understand the languages. They are just calling out to the One that they love, and it is just adoration for Him that calls them out. And they are in the Scriptures, and the fruit of that is a church that is so on fire and you can't stop the growth and there's all kinds of life change and miraculous things happening. And the heart of it is that they have roots that grow deep down into Jesus, as Paul says in Colossians 2, 6, and 7. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth as you were taught to just consider this one question how many times have you in the morning when you knew it was time for your quiet time have you skipped it or you cut it short so that you could get busy doing the important things that you need to do that day to be productive you ever done that I can't count how many times in my life I've done that, that I've cut my quiet time shorter than I wanted it to be because I felt the urgency of going and doing the productive things of my life when the reality is the fruitfulness of my life is tied to that time alone with God, growing roots down deep into him. Second key to a, a fruitful life is I must eliminate the weeds in my life. Weeds and briars that will choke out a fruitful life. I'm just going to remind you of this quickly. One of the best-known parables of Jesus is the parable of the the sower and the seeds. He tells a story about a farmer who goes out to sow seeds. The seeds land on four different kinds of soil. He explains, he says, the farmer is God, the seeds are the word of God, and the four kinds of soil represent our lives, our hearts, and how they respond to that. He says, some of the seed fell on a hard-packed path, and they didn't sink in, and the birds ate the seeds, total loss said a second kind of seed fell on rocky soil, real shallow soil that had rocks right underneath it. So they sprung up, but because they could have no depth of root, they almost immediately withered, and that was a total loss. A third kind fell among the the weeds, the thorn bushes, and they managed to sink in, and they grew up, and it looked like they were going to bear fruit, but then the briars wrapped all around them and choked them out, and they could bear no fruit. And he says there's a fourth kind of soil. That's the good soil that was prepared, and it received the seed, and they grew up. And he said, and it bore a fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. Once again, Jesus talking about productivity of a life. And he just left that for them to chew on. You know, which kind of soil are you? Well, that third kind, the soil that's got the weeds and the briars in it that will choke it out, that's what he's talking about. In Luke eight fourteen, when he says, The seeds that fell among the thorn bushes stand for those who hear, they hear the word of God, or they read it. But the worries, the riches, and the pleasures of this life crowd it, and they choke them, and their fruit never ripens. And what Jesus is warning us here is that we have to guard against these things. We have to be the ones that weed our lives, that we have to pay attention. And so I'm not trying to preach against something here. I'm just asking you to consider the question, what is it that chokes out the things that really matter the most? I mean, like, here's a really, really easy test. It's probably almost universal, at least for for most of us, that the fundamental things that we know are going to deepen our faith, that are going to strengthen our, our attraction to the Lord Jesus and to the things of faith and to other believers, things like worship times together, times together in small group, things like quiet times, okay, it's almost a universal experience that even though we know how good those things are for us, that there are plenty of times when we wake up on Sunday morning and go, oh, it sure would be nice to sleep in. Am I going to go? Am I going to stay home? And I'll tell you what's ten times more difficult than that for most people is on small group evenings. When you've worked all day, everybody in small group has felt this more times than you can count. That you're like, oh, I need to go to a small group. I just don't want to. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. We do the same thing with our quiet time. So here's the question in that. What is it that's draining you to the point that even though you know you walk away from worship, you walk away from small group One, wow, I'm so glad I was here. I mean, okay, show of hands time. How many of you have been in a small group And you showed up at a meeting that you did not want to go to. And when it was over, you left going, I'm so glad I went. Everybody in a small group has done that. Well, to raise both hands has happened so many times. We've all been there and done that. in spite of that, we still have all these times where we're like, I don't want to go. I'm just so whatever. I'm so tired. I'm so stretched, so thin. What is it that's pulling you away from quiet time, from small group, from worship, from the things that feed you? Look hard because you're probably getting close to identifying some briars, some weeds. Sometimes these aren't necessarily bad things, they're just things that have stretched us too thin. I don't have enough energy, I don't have enough rest to press into the things that really feed me. Weeds are consistently a sign of neglect. Anybody in here a gardener? Anybody garden? I hope we don't have to feed ourselves, we'll starve. Well, for those of us who have ever gardened, you know, you never have to sow weeds. You never have to plant them. There are 205 different kinds of weeds identified in America, and I think I've grown most of them. Never had to plant a one. They're going to come up on their own. John's a farmer. How many times have you had to sow weeds in your your garden? They're going to come. Weeds indicate neglect, and that's true in our lives. When we neglect to be really thoughtful and intentional, to carve some things back, to be reflective and go, what is it right now? What am I giving too much time to? And listen, don't be a legalist about this. God wants you to have things that you really enjoy that recharge your battery and rest you. He wants you to have those. But what he wants you to be mindful of is the things that we just give too much time to that are a complete waste or that just suck us dry to the point that we don't have time for the things that matter. That's what margin accomplishes for us. The third thing. I must cooperate with God's pruning in my life. Cutting off branches stimulates growth and fruitfulness consistently. Whether you're growing tomatoes, grapes, roses, you've got to cut off living stuff and dead stuff. In the same talk that we started with in John 15, Jesus said this, I'm the true vine, my father is the gardener, and he cuts off every branch of mine that does not produce fruit. And he also trims every branch that produces fruit to prepare it to produce even more. Listen, if you want to be a great mom or dad, you want to be a great teacher, a great business person, whatever it is that you do, you're going to have to learn to ruthlessly allow your life to be pruned. Ruthlessly weed your life, but let God prune everything that he wants to cut back. And most of us are too timid to want to cut some of the things out that need to go. But maximum fruitfulness requires ruthless pruning. And remember this, never confuse pruning with punishment. Pruning coming from God can feel like punishment in the moment. But listen, if you've zoned out, I need you to zone back in for this next thought. If you're a Christian, if you have placed your faith in the crucified and risen Son of God, Jesus, you are never punished for your sins. Let me say that again. If you belong to God... You are never punished for your sins. How many times have you had bad things happen in your life, and somewhere deep down inside, something in you went, "Uh uh-oh, I bet that was God punishing me. No, it wasn't. No, it was not. The reason I know that for certain is because what Jesus did on the cross was he bore all of the punishment for your sin. Jesus didn't go get two-thirds of it. Jesus got it all. So, I mean, there are times we'll make rotten decisions in a in a moral universe that God has created where there will be natural consequences, but it is not God punishing you. I mean, if I jump off of a building and I go splat, that's not God punishing me. That is me operating in a moral universe where consistently the laws of gravity are going to make things who, that are up here go down here. That That's not God's punishment. God isn't punishing you for your sins. That's been paid for on the cross. But realize that... There will be times of pruning in your life where God's going to do some things. He's going to cut some things. It's not because he's punishing you. Punishment's always about the past. Jesus has dealt with the past. Pruning is about the future. God's looking at you saying, Stone, I can make you more productive. I love you. I love you where you are now. I love what's being produced. But you know what? If I were to prune this in your life, you can be even more fruitful. And that sounds great on a Sunday morning. It stinks on a Friday when the pruning of God actually shows up and you find out Holy smoke. I didn't know this was coming. I didn't expect to test positive this week. I didn't expect to lose my job this week. I didn't expect this crisis to come along. And it's not God punishing you. It's God going, we're going to make an adjustment here. You can't see it yet, but you're going to be so much more productive as a result of this. I can think of one real obvious moment of pruning in my life I hated at the time. Nine years ago this month, I was asked to resign a church that I had started 12 years earlier. I loved it. It had grown. I was so a part of that church. And do you know that when I was asked to leave there, do you know what that was? That was the hand of God. That was the loving hand of God. Do you know how it felt in that moment? It did not feel like the loving hand of God. It felt like people were being cruel. People were being insensitive to me. Don't you ever do that? Don't you ever feel like the world's being mean to me? It's exactly how I felt. They're mistreating me. I went in my office and cried. I cried like a baby. Because something that was dear to me. I had invested so much of my life there for almost 12 years, and it wasn't my choice anymore. I was going to have to walk away from that. And what I could not see, what I could not possibly appreciate in that moment, was God was pruning me for even greater fruitfulness to come. How's that going to be? We were a large church. We were operating on three campuses in three communities. We were having three services a Sunday. Woo-hoo, glory to God. We're being fruitful. I had no idea that God could take me completely out of that and say, I have a plan for greater fruitfulness in your life. How could that happen? We start this little fellowship. Three years ago, God says, part of the plan is, I want you to bear fruit by planting new churches. And then he clarifies that word and says, and I want you to start planting overseas How do you do that, God? Don't worry about it. I'll show you. You're going to do it at least five times in the next ten years. By the way, this is year three. We've got seven years to to finish the first phase of this. We've got a lot more planting to do. Never in the 12 years that I pastored the last church that I was in did we ever see the kind of growth and fruit that we're seeing in Africa, and we have just gotten started, my friends. I had no earthly idea that when God came along and said, Snip, snip. Snip. That's being removed from your life. And it's like, but God, that is such a big part of my life. I don't want that taken away. And he said, I know you don't, but I have even greater things ahead. Trust me. We have to choose to cooperate with God's pruning in our lives. And know this, you won't usually like it in the moment. It's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about whenever he, he says in Hebrews 12, 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You know, if you look at a freshly pruned bush or tree, it looks rough. It looks ugly. It's been through some pain. But if you cooperate with it, you'll be so much more fruitful. But we can resist it. We can get mad. We can get bitter. We can become filled with doubt and resentment, and we can walk away. And God will let us. We have to cooperate with His his pruning, which brings us to the final point that I must patiently wait for and expect to harvest. Growing fruit takes time. You never plant a seed and then go pick a fruit the next day or the next week. I love growing things. Growing up, I grew all kinds of vegetables and fruit trees and things. I love to grow stuff. And I just planted a tangerine tree in my yard f- several weeks ago. And, I mean, I'm starting small. It's, it's literally it's about this tall right now. It doesn't, you can't qualify it as a tree yet. It's, it's so small. I went out and looked at it yesterday. Didn't find a single tangerine there. Not one. Been planted for weeks. No fruit. I don't expect any fruit next year because I've grown tangerines before. It's going to take some time. I'm fertilizing it, making sure it's protected. Given enough time, it will bear fruit. The things that we're talking about, they're not going to happen next week because you started having a quiet time today. We have to give time for fruit to be born. Jesus said in John 12, I'm telling you the truth, a grain of wheat remains no more than a single grain unless it is dropped into the ground and dies. If it does die, then it produces many grains. There's Jesus again. If you watch for it, it's amazing how many times he's talking about producing fruit, being fruitful, but there has to be a planting, a dying, a waiting, and then a bearing of fruit. There are going to be some things that have to die in our lives in that waiting time. Dying to self, letting some dreams die so that there's room for what God wants to do with a fruitful life. Final word for the day, back where we started, John 15. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you stay joined to me, other translations say, if you remain in me and I remain in you, you will produce plenty of fruit, but separated from me, you won't be able to do anything. The key word there is remain. Stay connected, to, stay connected to Jesus over time, knowing that in time, Jesus always produces fruit through our lives. I read recently where uh, a seed that was 600 years old, it was found in North America in an, in an Indian grave, a Native American's grave. The remains are 600 years old, and the remains had a necklace around them that had seed pods on it. And they took one of the seed pods off. still had seeds in it. 600-year-old seeds. They planted the, the seeds. And you know what happened? They immediately sprung up. As old as they were, as long as they had sat there nonproductive, given the opportunity, they sprung up. You may look at your life and think, I don't see much fruit in my life. I've been going to church a long time. I've been a Christian a long time. I don't think I've been very productive. I want to tell you, if that's where you are, The Lord looks at you and says, you may have been like that 600-year-old seed that's just sitting there waiting for his time. You cooperate with what God's wanting to do. You go back to the basics, and I'll guarantee you, life will spring up and fruit will emerge. Maybe you want to start today with a simple prayer that says this, God, I want to make the rest of my life the best of my life. Is that what you want? It's what I want. I want the rest of my life to be the best of my life. We've got to start by growing some roots, pulling some weeds, and pressing into him. Would you join me as we turn to him in prayer? Jesus, you are so good. You are indeed the vine, and we want to be the branches that stay connected to you. We want to belong to you. We want to belong to your family. Help us to be people who really do learn to grow roots that go deep down into you and that connect with others around us. Lord, I pray that you would, by the work of your spirit, birth in us a hunger and a thirst for you and your word. That we would just be mindful this week to to just begin every day with a little time spent alone with you in prayer, and your word, listening, just falling more in love with you. For some of us who really need to clear some things out in our lives so that we have room for you and for your family, I pray that you'd give us clarity about what needs to go. Maybe you are at a place you need for the very first time to let your roots grow into Christ. That you need to trust Him for the first time. Hey, there's no magic or formula that you need to follow to get ready for that. It is a simple response in faith that just says yes to Jesus. Reaching out to Him for forgiveness and salvation. Why don't you just pray in your heart a simple prayer that says, Jesus, I need you. I need you at the center of my life. I'm asking you to now forgive me of my sins, to take away my past, and to give me a new hope and a future centered on you. Please live your life through me. God, I thank you so much for hearing and answering our prayers. I pray that you would salt our souls to make us thirsty and hungry for more of you. We open ourselves up to you today as we pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I surely hope that what you heard was relevant and helpful and above everything. I hope that what you experienced today really helped your heart to connect with the heart of God. Now, if what you heard uh, for you stirred up any questions or maybe led you toward uh, some type of spiritual decision, maybe you want to talk with someone about something that's on your mind, I would love to hear from you. And so I would encourage you, reach out by email. At the bottom of the screen, you see my email address. It's mark at myfreedomchurch.net. That's not going to go to a secretary or an assistant. That will come directly to me. I'd love to hear from you and talk with you about anything that's on your mind. And if in the future you're in our area, we would love for you to come and worship with us at Freedom Church. But until then, we invite you to access all of the sermon material that you find online. Again, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Hope that you have a great day.